Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 38, The Matrix Movie Review. Brian here along with Yancey Eaton. It's Pop Goes Your World. You'll be able to find us on Twitter at Yancey Eaton or at C McBrian, or you always shoot us an email, Chris at PopGoesYourWorld.com or Yancey at PopGoesYourWorld.com. Yancey, how are you, my friend? I am never better, Chris. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> never better. Everything is perfect. Work is perfect. Uh, married to a fantastic woman. I'm talking about my favorite movie of all time tonight. So, oh, yeah, I'm actually pretty hey, Before we get started, uh, I remember when we did, I can't remember, it was a couple episodes ago, we were talking about some of our favorite TV shows that we watched as a kid. And one of the ones that I mentioned was Little Rascals. And, and, and mm-hmm. the thing is, okay, obviously I didn't grow up in the 30s, you know, when these things were made. But in the back in the 70s, um, after school, when we used to come home after school, Little Rascals used to always be on on TV. And it was on for like an hour, so they'd show like a whole bunch of, you know, different, because they were all shorts. They were like 10, you know, 10, 12, 13-minute shorts, right? And they'd show a bunch of them. And um, so I watched them all. I loved them as a kid. I was just loved it. thought it was great. And for whatever reason, I don't know where it came from, out of the blue, my son, who's seven years old, comes up to me the other day, and he's like, Daddy, I want to watch The Little Rascals. I'm like, well, I don't even know what the hell The Little Rascals is. You know, this is, this is 2017. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So I went on to YouTube. I'm like, are you sure? Like, these are black and white. And oh, yeah, I know, Daddy, I want to watch it. So <laughs> I, I go on to YouTube, and I find there's all kinds of episodes of Little Rascals on YouTube. So I go on there, and I find I find the first one that comes up, and I say, okay, let's watch it. So me and him sit there. This is like two nights ago. We sit there, and we're watching Little Rascals. And, and it's like about – so I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like all these – Poor kids back in the 30s. It's like, um, it's in like the 30s and 40s, like the Depression. These kids are poor. So, mm-hmm. and, and in this episode, they're like playing with a donkey. And so they're doing this stuff with this donkey. And like whenever they sneeze, the donkey chases them. And then they, when they ring a bell, the donkey sits down. It's so, it's so stupid. But then this rich kid comes along and wants to play with them. So then the driver of the car, the donkey ends up chasing this guy. And then they go back to the house and it chases him into the house and chases him upstairs. And it's in the bedroom. And then they're trying to lasso the donkey and they get the guy they're choking him and and so me and my son are on the couch laughing our heads off watching this short from like 1935 or something like that Mm -hmm. in black and white about these poor kids playing with a donkey and i'm we were just laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing so i think there's some things and from a pop culture perspective that are just timeless because to me, like for to have a seven year old in two thousand and seventeen watches, and he was laughing his head off, like genuine, and me, and I was too, and just it was it was kind of a really neat father and son moment, I guess. But we're watching a black and white thing from the thirties. I don't know. It held up. It held it holds up. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Nothing says classic father and son time quite like watching a bunch of poor kids playing with a donkey. I guess. <laughs> And everyone knows how much I love Fonzie. I don't know if you've seen any of the Sharknado movies. Shatner and Takei are going to be there. I cannot believe that this is actually possible. The Star Wars prequels were awful. Young Doctors in Love. Young Doctors in Love. Bad CGI kind of starts and ends with George Lucas. Some of the worst CGI I have ever seen in my entire life. He ruined the whole original trilogy by superimposing Hayden Christensen over Sebastian Shaw at the end of Jedi. I was curious to see how you were going to tie this uh, <laughs> this into the Matrix, but you you actually managed to make some sort of segue. So nice job! Yeah, there we go. We're talking about the Matrix tonight because you know we throw it back to you. This is like your favorite movie of all time, is it not? 
Yep, this is. This is my favorite movie. So you you talk about a like with Jaws and with Star Wars and all of your favorite movies kind of came around uh, about the same point for yep. me. Mm-hmm. It, the Matrix came out in 1999 and uh, I was 11 years old at the time and I thought I liked it for, well, I, I did like it, but I liked it for different reasons. But as I got older and was old enough to actually understand what was going on or you know what I thought was going on, it completely morphed into something a lot different. So this film has, it, it, it has just as much meaning to me then, but for different reasons now, that makes sense. Okay, so first of all, I'll just say, boy, you talk about like how the pendulum swings. So one week we're talking about Jaws, and the mm-hmm. next week we're talking about The Matrix. Like, talk completely different films. When you think about the concept of the movie, the concept of Jaws is very simple. A great, what happens if a great white shark comes into a community and won't go away? Pretty straightforward concept. That's what the movie's about. The Matrix, okay, the concept of this film is what if human beings actually aren't living their lives? Instead, we're all in pods and we've got like these wires stuck in us and we're basically being used to suck our energy out of us. But in order for the, you know, these, this artificial intelligence and robots to do this to us, they have to try and make us think that we're leading lives. So they have these computer programs that give us dreams and all. Talk about high concept <laughs> versus Jaws <laughs> last week. Like, holy smokes, right. it's off the charts. So, so, I guess as an overall, like, what is it? You saw this movie when you were 11. By by contrast, the, my favorite movie when I was 11 was Raiders of the Lost Ark because it came out in mm-hmm. 1981 and I was 11 when it came out and I just lost my mind. Um, so this movie, very interesting. We've talked before about how when you're 11, that's a very big pivotal time in your life in terms of pop culture. What was it about this movie that, that grabbed you right away that made you just love it? Um, I think it was the special effects. So... Uh, I mean, you've obviously seen the movie. I hope you would have watched it before we recorded tonight. But um, just what they did with the camera work with, uh, you know, the stop motion and the the use of dozens and dozens of, of cameras and the still photos and all these different implementations of, of, of video and action sequences. It was stuff that I had never seen before. Um, you know, at the time, I thought that was something that was completely original that they had come up with themselves. But, of course, most of these action scenes, they're direct, you know, uh, derivations of, you know, Kung Fu and old anime and Ghost in the Shell and um, it's just all these different it's it's like a hodgepodge of like 50 different sources that they've kind of thrown together you know there's a YouTube video that talks about how everything is a remix Um, you know even like your Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, it pulls from all of these different films that predated it by decades you know Raiders yeah was basically based on the the old movie serials of the 30s and Flash Gordon and stuff like that so everything everything is like that and The Matrix while you said it seems like a very high concept idea but um, you know it's it's references are pulled from play you know, from really, really old school, you know, philosophy and from, like I said, Kung Fu and really esoteric uh, Japanese anime and just all the stuff, you know, all the fight sequences, the idea for the simulation itself. These are all basically just all these different things pushed into one and like this neatly packaged, well-written movie that's just perfect from top to bottom for me. Um, It's uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start with with this as far as like questions go. But so let me let me ask you this. Well, first of all, I just just I want to jump in for a second. You make some good points. Like this movie kind of draws on other, you know, on other um, influences for it. A lot. The, the, yes. the two influences that stand out the most for me, and you 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 know you mentioned you know had I seen the movie. Funny enough, 
Up until this week, I had never sat down and watched The Matrix from beginning to end in one sitting. I'd seen pieces really? of it here and there. So I did obviously take your challenge. I sat down. I watched it with my wife. And we watched it. And by the way, you know, it's so funny. I always make jokes on here about how my wife doesn't like, you know, the movies that I watch. So this one, she says, uh, she says so we, what, are we, what are we doing? I said, we got to watch The Matrix because I'm doing a review of it with Yancey on the podcast. She's like, okay. So we sit down. We watch the movie. She goes, you know how you should review this movie? One word. It's. That's how she goes. How else? <laughs> can, she's like, how else can you de- describe this movie other than the fact that it's? And I'm like, well, I guess you're right because it's kind of weird. Like I say, a high concept. But anyway, mm-hmm. come, we'll come back to that in a, in a bit. Um, but for me, it, they're, they're watching it for the first time from beginning to end. To me, I noticed two big influences on this movie, and I don't know if this has been written, you know, in the story of the Matrix or and then all that kind of stuff. But Let's the two, it. the two things for me are number one. David Cronenberg. And I don't know if you're familiar with David Cronenberg. He's a Canadian director. He's done lots of stuff. Um, but he, th- th- that scene where they, they, they got, I don't know what the thing's called, but it's that little robot uh, sort of scorpion that goes in a, knee, in a Neo's belly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that whole scene is like, it, I'm like, David Cronenberg might as well have directed this movie. If you're not sure, or any listeners are not sure, what I'm talking about, the one movie that kind of sticks out to me for David Cronenberg is a movie called Videodrome. It came out in like 81, I think it was. And it was really, at the time, video was kind of becoming big and all that kind of stuff. And it was based on kind of the fears of like like video and what's going on. And the idea was this guy finds a videotape of like a snuff film, but then he takes it and then he sticks it inside his stomach, right? His stomach opens up and he sticks it in there and it's like all gross, just like when that thing went into Neo's belly. It was really weird. And then he's like acting out the snuff movie and all this weird stuff. And I'm like, this, there were just scenes, the way it was shot reminded me a lot of Cronenberg. And it's, another one is Naked Lunch. If you go back and watch Naked Lunch, there's a lot of parallels to kind of like The Matrix, to me, in, in, in mm-hmm. the style. So that's one. I think Cronenberg is an influence on this movie. Um, I, that's my, my feeling. And the second one that stood it to me was the 1989 Tim Burton Batman. I think is very influential in this movie. Whoa. The, the way the way it's shot, the color scheme, the, the the way that it's very highly stylized, lots of overhead shots, kind of interesting sets, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like that stylistic direction, like I said, with like like I say, the overhead shots. I remember there was one scene where Neo was looking at himself in the broken mirror. They used the the reflection in the bent spoon in the one in the one scene, and the other one that I, I was there was a reflection in the sunglasses. You see, like the other person's reflection. That's like right out of Hitchcock's playbook, you know, from Strangers mm-hmm. on a Train and stuff. So there's a lot of influences, I think, in this movie. Whereas it's easy to look at this movie and say it's very original. But it, in fact, borrows from a lot of other genres. And the last being, I would say, is you mentioned, is, is anime. Because it's almost like they, they kind of said, hey, you know what? We really like anime. Let's make anime for real. Right. You know? So that's kind of right. my take on the influence on it. So anyway, so you had some questions for me on the movie. Yeah. All right. So as a standalone science fiction piece, this was uh, – prior to this, I was basically like a cartoon guy. And I wasn't familiar with the science fiction genre at all. Couldn't tell you any of the movies, nothing like that outside of maybe Star Wars. And this was kind of what pushed me into like the serious, like the you know the dark uh, sci-fi thriller horror type thing. Almost like, you know, it's the dystopian, you know, super distant future type of science fiction genre. And that's – to this day, it's still my favorite is, is this particular genre. So as a standalone for the science fiction genre, like – like, w- would you put this in 
basically where would this rank for you in, as far as like the pantheon of science fiction films do you think this has any type of um is this like a flag bearer for the genre as a whole do you think this is something that in 30 years we're still going to be talking about this as, as something that's going to be an influence on other films just kind of like where do you put this in the pecking order of science fiction um, films? i don't know where i'd put it sort of in terms of like if i had to sort of number it anywhere but it's up there pretty high and here's why because i think a lot of really good science fiction films especially thrillers are they, what they do is they do something that's very very effective and they tap into the fear of the times in which that they're set okay mm -hmm. so let me give you an example back in the 50s invasion of the body snatchers was a big time science fiction movie and it really tapped into people's fears because it basically the theme in that movie is basically mccarthyism because you don't know who's a communist and who isn't they look who like you who they, your neighbors they, are who your yeah. neighbors are are they actually the pod people you know what i mean so so i think that's an example. We we saw that again with this movie, The Matrix, because I think you got to think about when it came out in 1999, this movie's playing on the fears that were surrounding Y2K. You know, people yeah. had fears of software and fears of artificial intelligence and, you know, what might happen when those computers rolled over from 99 to 2000. And so there was a lot of people really, really afraid of computers and stuff in general. So how about this concept of what if computers kind of took over the world? And and then mm -hmm. and the furthermore, I think that it even holds up today because really, the whole movie is really a metaphor for society, isn't it? I mean, like we all are just worker drones, you know, rat race going about our day, just working mindlessly, while the big corporations are sucking all the juice out of us and 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 for their sustenance. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of metaphors in the movie. So I would say the good science fiction films both are rooted in the times in which they're set and also have high concepts, you know, and, and they play on people's fears. And I think this one does it in spades. So I would say it ranks pretty darn high in my estimation. I remember whenever um, years and years ago, I was watching a TV special and um, I can't remember exactly what it was or what the special was called, but um, it was by AFI, the Film Institute, mm -hmm. and they were ranking the top 100 films of all time. And at that point, like I said, this was years ago. The Matrix had only been around for, you know, a handful of years and they had it in like the top 60s. It was like 65th or 66 or something. And I was absolutely blown away that it had that type of you know, power only being around for so few years. But whenever you look at the, all of the production and the equipment that was used in it, and like I said, how it drew from all these different sources, and it did make a product that in itself was kind of like a standalone, you know, uh, a new piece, a new product like nobody had ever seen before. I was just really taken aback by that. And this is one of those films too for me, like with my age group, my millennial age group, I can I can name, you know, 10 friends of mine that where they would put this in their top four or five films of all time, just because it was so huge in that moment. And like we were talking about too, with like the Y2K fears and the fears of artificial intelligence and stuff. I think that nails it perfectly. And just the entire premise that we're living in a civil, uh, we could be living in a simulation. There was no reason that you could uh, basically dispute the fact that we could be living in a, 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 a simulation now. I don't know if you've ever uh, read up on Elon Musk, but obviously you know who Elon yeah. Musk is, correct? Yeah, of course. Okay, so he has famously to this point now um, done you know press conferences and he's done interviews and stuff for you know TED talks and, and whatnot, where he basically talked about how if you use uh, you know statistical probability in you use uh you know computer simulation code and all this stuff that it is more likely that we actually are living in a simulation just because you know computers you can make you know millions and millions of copies of different things and uh that kind of like sparked this this huge um it almost brought like the entire simulation theory to i don't want to say the mainstream but a lot more people became more uh, aware that it was an actual thing and that's kind of like re-driven like this this huge kind of like uh 
you know, internet culture and forums and, and posts and fan theories that are surrounding the Matrix. So it's kind of given it like a second life in the last, you know, two or three years. And that's simply just because of Elon Musk. But um, I just did a lot of talking. There wasn't, there wasn't a question in there at all. But so let me ask you this. So yes. um, who would you say, they say it repeatedly throughout this film, but who would you say is the one in the Matrix? Who is the actual one? Well, it's got to be Neo because Neo is an, is, um, an anagram for one, right? You take the O O N E and mix them around. It's Neo, so right. it's got to be him. So right? that was my for years. That that was the, my takeaway from it. Right? It was it was it was right there in front of you, Neo. He's the one. Everybody calls him the one. Morpheus, Trinity, um, all the people of Zion. Everybody believes that Neo is the one. So, like I said, this movie it changes for me, and it's it's constantly morphed throughout the years because there's actually a lot more that goes into this than most people think. Um, I'm at this point now where I'm actually convinced that Neo is not the one, and it really it. it bodes well for the the clever writing and just how in-depth the Wachowskis went in making this is uh, there's all this evidence that actually alludes to the fact that uh, the one is not Neo and it's actually Agent Smith. Um, so there's all these different things like they talk about how the one is actually a man that's born inside the Matrix and we know that Neo was not born inside the Matrix. He was born inside an incubator. That's why he has electric plugs all over his body, right? And then it talks about, you know, the architect. He's the older white man with the white hair. And the second movie, The Matrix Reloaded, it talks about the one. He is the person who returns the source and reloads the Matrix. Um, there's no way that Neo can do that, obviously. Um, and in the third film, which I know we're talking about the first, but this is a trilogy that it actually bores us out later. Um, Agent Smith, he refers to the Oracle as mom. He actually calls her mom. And we know from the prophecy that talks about this entire matrix, and I know this is like very, very derivative, but um, it, it talks about how the Oracle actually created the one. So for years, we've all thought that Neo was the actual one. He was the savior of it. And come to find out, it's probably not him at all. It's actually Agent Smith who, you know, once he re-implants himself into the Matrix, he basically resets it and there's peace at the end of the, at the very, very end of the series. So like I said, for years, I thought it was one way and then it's completely switched onto the other. And then maybe about six months ago, I came on another fan theory that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Chris, have you ever wondered how like, um, whenever he's in the Matrix, you know, mm -hmm. he can fly and he can stop bullets and, you know, he has all these supernatural powers. Mm -hmm. um, and then once, you know, further on in the film, even after he leaves the Matrix and he's back on, quote unquote, real Earth, he still has these supernatural powers. I mean, did you ever think about that? Did that cross your mind? No, did you no, question that? No, I didn't. So those those types of powers transition over to the real world, um, which is obviously really weird. But then there's a second theory that they're basically in a simulation of a simulation. So whenever he is pulled from his incubator and he's, you know, he's basically liberated by Morpheus and he's on the quote unquote real world, it's actually just another layer of the simulation. So he, they're tricking him into thinking that he is free when he's not. So that's why he can still do those things because he's still technically in a simulation and he's not bound by physical law. Um, like I said, I know this is being like super, super esoteric, but um, it just it speaks to the layers and the layers that go with the Matrix. And this movie is it's stuck with me. It, it won't go away because every time I think that I figured it out, um, there's more layers to this that just keep unfolding and unfolding. And as as disappointing as the second and the third films were, they actually do a nice job of kind of explaining it a little bit more. 
Um, but again, I know we didn't watch all three of them, but it is it is pretty incredible just how layered and how in-depth this film is. I thought it was interesting a couple of weeks ago when we talked about uh, your other film that you've put forward so far, which was District 9. And one mm-hmm. of the, the words that you used to describe that movie was duality. And I thought that was right. interesting because that was at play in this movie a lot. For me, it was. I thought there was a lot of duality in this movie. I thought it started right from the beginning when you saw sort of that, that fusion of the modern look and then the old gothic buildings. Yes. You know what I mean? Like kind of like that duality yes. that went on. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I thought that also the whole idea of the fusion of man and machine was was part of that uh, that duality as well. So do you agree with that? You think they, that, that was kind of a, a theme? You know, it was a theme, obviously, in the last film, District 9. It's a, it was a, a prevailing theme in this movie, too. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, there, there are parts, too, like you said, it'll switch from going from incredibly, like, picturesque things, and it, it's basically showing you the world as people want it to be or as they are, are led to believe that it's supposed to be, when in reality, that's just a facade and it's completely fake. <clears throat> Excuse me. So anytime you see them actually, you know, you see Trinity and Morpheus and Neo together, or they're actually fighting, like, almost, you know, right on cue, the the world around them, the, the landscape, which you know, that they're fighting and that they're, you know, taking on Agent Smith and the others, it kind of devolves. It becomes grungier. It's dirtier. Um, there's this weird greenish hue, you know, like this weird green coloration to almost all of the film whenever they're outside of the Matrix. You know what I mean? Like, so there is, there's this scorched earth that is, quote unquote, the real earth that, you know, man scorched the skies and it caused it to look like this. And there's this, this second duality, like you said, like this beautiful picturesque uh, matrix that people want to believe is real, when in reality it's just uh, it's just something else fake that we're, we're being fed to believe that it is. Maybe, um, that, maybe that's where the woman in the, in the red dress plays into a, that same idea too, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. I, think, I think you're right when you mention that sort of green aura. The green aura is in most of the scenes. I'm assuming, I was assuming right from the get-go that that was done to sort of represent sort of that green aura that comes off of the, the computer code, you know, that you see at the mm-hmm. beginning of a movie, like, like you see on like yep. a, a computer monitor and and obviously they use green filters on this movie they removed all the blue out of the movie too to really give it that kind of green look which uh which i thought was interesting but i think that just kind of lent to the the gothic look of the whole movie and and then that's what kind of why i'm throwing back to the 1989's batman because the thing with batman was when you watched it was it was very gothic looking like it was just this kind of goth sets and it really kind of stylized the whole thing in the matrix i don't know it felt like that to me too mm-hmm. uh, that's for sure. It is weird that you would see something like that, where, like you said, it, it's it's like dirty and it's goth and it's grunge and it's, but it's also kind of like um, it's it's like a noir. What's the word I'm thinking of? Like it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's it's sci-fi and it's it's clean, like you would think of like futuristic sci-fi, but it, it instantly flips and it becomes this dirty. Uh, I don't know. It, it's it's multiple genres of film and how you're used to seeing things cast and how scenes are supposed to look. It bounces and it plays between them so freaking much. It's like, I mean, it's really, really weird. Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple things about the special effects. I agree. I think at the time they kind of developed that whole idea of taking the camera, but instead of them kind of like, okay, so you know when he's kind of stops in the air and the bullets are all around him? Like they did mm-hmm. that with multiple cameras all around and they all take shots and then they kind of, you know, put all the film together, which I thought was interesting. You think about this movie and you think a lot about special effects. One of the special effects that I think was born out of this movie was the idea of wire fighting. Like, like sort of the wire scenes where the guys are wired up and they're jumping around. Like, as right. far as I know, this was the first movie that ever did it. I could be wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure this was the first one. Um, like when they were doing the scenes and the kung fu scenes where they're using, you can obviously tell they're using wires, they're suspended in the air. And I think 
The other thing that was cool with the Kung Fu scene that I thought was really neat was I'm sure at times that they obviously they sped the film up, you know, to make the, the movements right. all a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. But that was Reeves and Fishburne that were doing the moves. And that's pretty cool because a lot of movies have like stuntmen and the actors don't. Those actors were actually, you could tell, I'm watching it thinking they trained for a long time to do yep. this because they're the ones that are doing the moves. I thought that was really cool um, in, in terms of special effects. The other thing I thought was interesting was, the you know, we, we talk about CGI and there was certainly some CGI in the movie. Um, but you know that massive government lobby shootout scene? Yes. No CGI in that scene at all. Yep. None. They took 10 days to shoot that sucker, and they did it without CGI. So I think there was still um, – a, a t- this is maybe one of those movies that was kind of right on the precipice of, you know, sort of the old school of doing it all with regular special effects and then CGI. And it's obviously kind of tipped now. Where that, mm. would all, that would all be digitized. That would all just be done by CGI. But they were still kind of on the edge of using old-fashioned, you know, special effects to do, uh, do, the, do the movie, at least for that scene, too. Mm-hmm. Other ties that I think uh, to the past that I wanted to mention was uh, Joe Pantoliano. Uh, yes, he, yes. He was in, of course, one of my all-time favorites, The Goonies, because he was Francis Fratelli. And it was, so it was neat to see him in this movie. Yes, that, he that's was. For sure. I yes, thought that was, was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, you know, I mentioned when we talked about duality, the other duality that kind of struck me was you mentioned the Oracle. Because like, she's like this all-knowing prophet, you know, super, super important character. And she basically lives in like a lower-class apartment with like cheap appliances. Mm-hmm. Yep, you she's know, like, an African-American woman and she smokes cigarettes. Yeah, and, yeah. like it's so interesting, yeah. you know. I think it's and, interesting. and even even the duality of the, the idea that the Matrix has rules and it's and, and, and sort of like uh, Morpheus says, you know, it's up to you to bend them, you know, and right. then to break them. And that's how we learn how to dodge the bullets. And yep, there is that, no right spoon. Um, yeah, but, but you, can talk, you talked about the breaking of the rules, Chris. Like that's actually explained by the, you know, originally by the Oracle where they talk about how in this prophecy of, of the Matrix and how there are multiple iterations and how the one will save them. Uh, one of the prerequisites to somebody actually being the one is that they can break rules. Right. So we learn that with Agent Smith because, you know, he is the first agent where you remember whenever uh, Morpheus is in the, the lobby and they're trying to interrogate him. He actually takes his earpiece out. Agent Smith does, mm-hmm. which that's basically disconnecting him from, you know, the, the Matrix mainframe itself. So he was the first one who actually started starts breaking rules of the matrix he starts making copies of himself which was against the rules there's there's all these different things that leads us back to the fact that it is agent smith as opposed to neo which you know for you you're a casual you know observer this movie will never mean as much to you as it does to me so that that part in itself may not be that important but chris years ago whenever this first became something in my consciousness that was mind-blowing that completely shattered like my entire existence so like i don't want to just like gloss over that's why i keep going back to it is is how this movie has different acts and it has legs on it that just keeps you know it just keeps going it's 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 really crazy how it works like that i also thought it was another interesting theme and it was uh, it's almost like how can i explain it's almost like okay so like dinosaurs had their time on the planet humans had their time and now computers are having theirs. Like that's kind of mm-hmm. like it was a theme that, that kind of, I kind of, I kind of took away from it. But I mentioned cool. before yeah. about uh, you know my the, this movie's ties to the past with with uh, Joe Pantoliano. Um, another scene, <laughs> the Gen Xers out there will know what I'm talking about. You're gonna have no clue. But there was this, the scene when Morpheus was introducing Neo to his team for the first time. Like he's like, this is Dozer and Switch and Tank. And Tank. Remember? Yeah. I was reminded yep. of a scene from a movie called Top Secret. And it was like from like 1985 with with Val Kilmer. And in it, Gen Xers that are listening are gonna be like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. So there's this, this guy goes and he's like part of the, he it's like um, the French uh, re- re- resistance, 
during the war. And he, and he goes and he meets some of the agents and like, I'm going to introduce you to the, the, the French resistance here. And he's like, this is avant-garde and souffle and chocolate mousse and chocolate mousse is this black guy and then there's another guy deja vu and, goes, and, the, and this is deja vu and deja vu looks at him and goes haven't we met somewhere before and it's just i don't know why that scene when he's introducing the team of, of, of like switch and take i just that's what I, all i could think of was top secret when he's introducing those guys oh gosh totally totally crazy okay um i, I remember a, a couple of shows ago Quite a few shows ago, we were talking about um, we were talking about oh, what should I call it? Will Smith's movie, um, uh, Wild Wild West, and you were saying that's steampunk. Is this movie steampunk? And this is a dumb Gen X question, I know, but is The Matrix steampunk? I don't think that's in the same spirit of steampunk. Um, no, steampunk is more like a like a rustic, metallic, almost it, it, it's like futuristic, but futuristic as what people would think would be futuristic back in like the 1800s so you got to think like a lot of like uh blacksmith like molded metal like uh, no this isn't steampunk at all that's like a very specific genre and i remember trying to explain that to you back then and i'm not doing any better now but no this isn't steampunk as i mentioned before we're talking about the special effects movie we're talking about the wire fighting um like i said i'm pretty sure it was developed for this movie but uh i think it was really sort of taken to new levels in have you ever seen crouching tiger hidden dragon Yes, of course. God, it was so good. And, and so I think that that movie owes a lot to this movie for a lot of those scenes because they obviously were, were building on a lot of things that were uh, mentioned in this. Um, I, have a, I have a trivia question for you regarding The Matrix since it's your favorite movie. Um, Keanu Because I mean, we mentioned last week we were talking about Jaws. And one of the things I always love is like casting decisions. Like, oh, this person was actually up for the part. Oh, I couldn't imagine. I, I already know what you're going to say. Yeah. yeah. So you know who was the first choice to play Neo for the movie? Will Smith. Yes, it was. Can you imagine the, the film with Will Smith in that part? I'm sure he'd kill it because, I mean, like this, he was right in his wheelhouse, you know, around 99. And other, although, I guess maybe he turned it down to do uh, Wild Wild West. So let me ask you, Chris. We, we did this last week and we did it the week before. So if you had to give it a 0 to a 10, 10 being, you know, Jaws, an absolutely perfect film, what would you give The Matrix? You might be surprised, Yancey. I'm going to give it an 8. An 8? Yes. That's good. You'll take that? Yeah, I'll take that. That's, that's I, I really do. I think it was it was highly stylized. I think it was it, it was very conceptual. There was a lot going on in this movie. Like I said, there was multiple layers to it. The fact that the good movies that like this um, have high concepts in terms of science fiction movies, for that matter. Um, you know, they they, uh, they they obviously reflect the times in which they're set, as I mentioned before. And I think this one really kind of hit on all the marks. So I give it a very very high. And it was very influential too. It drew on a lot of movies, but I think it's also. Um, affected a lot of movies. We mentioned Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, things like that. It's it's been a highly influential movie, so I think it goes as high as an eight. Cool, I will take it, man. That's awesome. So uh, so anyway, so just give us a recap as to like for me, I think I gave a lot of reasons last week about why Jaws was so important to me as a kid when I saw it, what it meant to me, all that kind of stuff. So now sell me on this movie. Why is this movie so important? Not just I guess to millennials overall, but even just to you personally as a millennial. Why The Matrix? Why this movie? Was it because of when it came out? What it's about? Like, what is it? That's actually a really interesting question, but 
I, I think for me, this was the first movie where I wasn't just a passenger in this. I had to be actively engaged, and it got me thinking about the movie. Um, so, like, this was the first time where I viewed a movie as, like, a puzzle to be solved, and I had to think critically, and I had to be, you know, I had to pay attention to really comprehend what was going on, and I like that. I like that type of mental challenge. Um, there's that, and like I mentioned earlier, this was the first film that, that truly captivated me just from a visual standpoint and just from the fact that it was a, a next-level type of plot and scenario, and it, it thrust me into this love for science fiction. This was the first film that did that for me, that made me love sci-fi films, and like I said, the fact that it, it does have legs and it can keep transforming and having different meanings and different outcomes and what I thought was, you know, correct is actually still morphing and it's very much a work in progress i think it's that it's the fact that i'm constantly thinking about this film sometimes i'll just wake up in the middle of the night and i'll, I'll take a different direction with it and it's always fresh to me so i mean a movie where you watch it once and i, I think you remember um you said last week with district nine how you thought it was a good movie but you don't know if you would sit down and watch it again in its entirety mm-hmm. um i think with the matrix if you knew uh, just to look for certain things. Uh, each time you watch The Matrix, you're going to get more and more out of it, and it's going to be, be it's going to become even deeper and deeper. It's you know it's the old adage: the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know, kind of thing. I, it's like that with The Matrix with me, where you know it's it's uh, over a decade later, and I'm still thinking about this movie. It's funny because yeah, we mentioned last week, and you know what? I'm going to stick to my guns on this because I really believe you know. I know I'm a Gen Xer and I know I love the past and I love all these, but to me, there's something about Gen X films that have an inherent rewatchability quality about them. You can watch them over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and the the, critis- the only criticism that I had of District 9 when we did that movie was, I don't think I'd watch it again. And I will say that The Matrix is more so than that movie, I would watch it again, but I don't think I could watch it like a bazillion times. You know, mm-hmm. whereas I, I just, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I just tend to find that newer movies, the millennial, you know, generation of films don't have that inherent rewatchability. It's like they wow the living daylights out of you when you watch, right. you know, millennial movies. They just wow you. But then it's good. You know what I mean? See, that's, yeah, but that's, honestly, that's just, I think it's different taste with you and I. Yeah. Where we both grew up with such different backgrounds. That like, uh, I mean, with Blazing Saddles, I laughed hilariously. I mean, just out loud the entire time when I watched it the first time because it was just so off the cuff and so witty. And there were so many random things just inserted into the movie. And the second time, I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was funny. Um, but most of that gotcha, like that that shock of how it, it, it splits and it becomes like this crazy self-aware, you know, when they're in the Warner Brothers lot. And, you know, like I only got that magic once. You see what I'm saying? Right. Um, whereas, like I said, with The Matrix, like there are so many things visually going on and thematically going on where I feel like it's a different movie with the more and more I have, you know, little inputs going into it. But um, I I think it's just different, Chris. We're going to realize this as we keep doing the show um, that there's a lot more that goes into like your perception of a film versus mine. And it all has to do with um, (laughs) everything, just societal inputs, how things were whenever you were a child, you know, general themes like the, you know, the pulse of society whenever you were a kid growing up you know, fears, concerns, the tempo, you know, everything like that. I mean, you're, you're going to see things from a different filter than I am. And I, I think that's something that we're, we're constantly going to be grappling with and trying to reconcile. Um, we're basically, we're coming at it from, you know, we're learning the same subject, but we're kind of using different textbooks, if that makes sense. 
You know what? The thing is, you make a good point because I think the difference is this. I think it's that the rewatchability of millennial films comes from the fact that there's multiple layers in the film. So like you said, you yeah. watch The Matrix 10 times and it's like watching 10 different films because you're taking different things from it each time. Whereas the rewatchability of Gen X movies is is the simplicity of the film. The fact that it's just so simple and straightforward, it is what it is. It's watching it over and over again gives you that familiarity. Whereas the mm-hmm. millennial films, you watch them over and over again, it's like different every time. Something new. new things out every time. The Gen X movies, it's just that familiarity and that comfort food almost that you're getting from those movies. That, as I think, is the difference in terms of the rewatchability. Does that make sense? Chris- it does make sense. That might actually be the most profound thing you've said on this show so far. Oh, wow. Well, that's, I, <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. And that may be where we should, uh, should leave things off for this week. So I'll tell you what, Yancey, your assignment, should you choose to accept it, young man, is between now and next week to watch the Gen X movie of my choosing, of course. And I want you to come back next week prepared to give a millennial spin on this movie. As, as you know, I'm a huge fan of comedies. So I want you to take a look at and come back and be prepared to talk about the 1980 comedy classic Airplane. Are you up okay. for the challenge, my friend? Okay, I am up to the challenge. I've never actually watched Airplane. I've seen bits and pieces. I mean, if, if I heard certain quotes, I would know it's Airplane, but uh, I've never watched it, so this should oh, be fun. Oh, this is going to be fun. It is one of my favorite movies. And you talk about familiarity. I remember when uh, years ago when I was in Toronto, when I was an actor in Toronto, uh, one of my best friends was an actor as well, and we would just get together all the time you know, this is back before I was married and, you know, I'd have kids that we were just single. We'd get together and before we'd like go out for the night or go out like party and or something. Like that, well, let's, let's, let's get together and watch like, we would watch like all these movies over and over like Airplane and Blazing Saddles. I'd seen them a million times. That was one of the fun things we just loved. We had the shared love of film and acting and all that kind of stuff. So we would, I'd probably see an airplane a bazillion times. Like, and, and and probably half of them were was with my buddy uh, Rob Upward, the radio guy out of Toronto, because we watched it so many times together. So, uh, so yeah, so you're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about Airplane. God, I love that movie so much. I hope you like it as much as I did. But uh, I tell you what, in, until then, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, at Yancey Eaton. You can tweet me at C McBrien. Just remember McBrien's I-E-N. Uh, shoot us an email, chris at popgoesyourworld.com, Yancey at popgoesyourworld.com. For that matter, the website is popgoesyourworld.com. All our contact information is on there. All the episodes, the past episodes, if you want to catch them, are there. Until next time, this is Chris McBrien for Yancey Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Music.